0: So we are today going to be commencing our um, is it semi-annual uh, week of prayer. We do this twice a year, so we do usually one in January, which we're going to do last week because of the snow day. We didn't do it, so we're going to pick up there this week, and then we do another one in July. We feel like as we spend time in January that it's important for us to kind of refocus on essential things. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the need for us to have attention or pay attention to God's word. And then now today we're going to talk about prayer. I said to you a couple of weeks ago as we approached that sermon on God's Word that we're not trying to encourage some kind of legalism here or hyper-religiosity. We don't advocate certain times that you have to pray each day or a certain amount of time you must read your Bible. Yet at the same time, we're not afraid to say that you need to be in God's Word. And likewise, we need to be people of prayer. And so it's going to be, hopefully my glad burden today to prove to you how desperately we need prayer and how God himself aids us in prayer. So that's what I want to prove to you today, that you need prayer and that God himself aids us as we pray. So we'll be discerning that hopefully from Romans chapter 8, which we took some time a couple years ago to actually go through in great detail, but not specifically with this theme in mind. So I want us to go back through it today. And hopefully it will make sense. But Before we do that, I want to turn to John chapter 14. In this context in Jesus' ministry, he is about to be arrested and crucified, after which, of course, he will be resurrected and will ascend back to the Father. But he wants to tell his disciples, though the, those with whom he has spent so much time, that he's not going to abandon them. Much the opposite. He's going to be with them and minister to them and care for them. And he's going to do that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, before we get into this and read these verses, I want to help you begin thinking through this process this morning. Here's what I mean. As Orthodox Protestants, as people who care a whole lot about God's Word and about theology, at the end of the day, we, we are theologians in one way or another. That doesn't mean necessarily that you write books or that you have a degree in theology, but in one way or another, if you know some things about God, you are at least a, an amateur theologian. And as amateur theologians, at least in one sense or another, we have this sense that, that there's this Christian doctrine out there called Trinitarianism, and we're supposed to believe it, that there is a God who exists in three persons, each of those persons is equal in essence or nature. And though they are unified as a whole, we don't believe in three gods, yet they are distinct in their personhood and in some ways at least distinct in their activity. Now, Maybe you wouldn't say it just like that, but when somebody says something like that, you say, yeah, I, I, I know that's basically true and, and I, I kind of get that and that's what I believe. I, I believe in the Trinity, that God, one God, exists in the persons of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. I can't explain it exactly. Uh, all the analogies that people have come up through the years are basically deficient, but I, I, I assent to that even though it's a great mystery. But I think that even if we are Orthodox Trinitarians, and again, you might not put it like that, but, but I hope we all are here, that if you're at least an Orthodox Trinitarian... I think it's very difficult to actually become a practicing Trinitarian. Here's what I mean. It's possible to believe the right things about God, but perhaps those things have very little bearing on the way that you live. One of the things that I want to prove today from God's Word is that the very nature of God has very important information or very important bearing on the way that we actually live. Let's begin in John chapter 14, verse 18, and I think that this will begin to make sense. So remember, Jesus is promising some very important things to these disciples before he goes off the scene. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my father and you and me and I in you. You heard me say to you, I am going away and will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So he's saying to them here, I am I'm about to go away from you. They didn't fully get this. In fact, when he told them about his impending arrest and death, Peter, perhaps the greatest of the apostles, said, No, that's not going to happen to you. Peter had this idea that he was going to join Jesus as like an earl or a duke or something like that and be very important in Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus actually says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, opposer, because you don't understand the things of the kingdom of God. So Jesus again says to them, I'm going away. But he anticipates that they're going to be bewildered, that they're going to scatter, and that they're going to be petrified. And so he says to them, I will not leave you as orphans. This metaphor is really interesting. So basically, in Jesus' mind, he knows that when he goes away, they're going to feel abandoned. They're going to feel helpless. But he says to them, it's actually better that I'm not here with you because I'm going to send the Helper. Of course, we know him to be the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And he will minister my presence to you. He will remind you of all the things that I have told you. He will comfort you. He will love you. He will care for you. He will empower you. He will protect you. So Jesus is saying, you will not be in a worse place than when I was with you. In fact, this will be better. For the Holy Spirit will be with you wherever you are, all of you, all over the world. And He'll do for you exactly what you need. See, Jesus was not just trying to help the disciples be the first Orthodox Trinitarians. Now, by that I do not mean that the Trinity had not eternally existed. It always had. The Trinity had always been there. But it had never been fully revealed. It had never been fully understood. And Jesus was not merely trying to help them understand that there were three persons in the one Godhead. In fact, he doesn't even quite say it like that. Jesus is not mostly concerned with their doctrinal understanding here. Jesus is mostly concerned with how they are going to make it whenever he's off the scene. So Jesus is much more concerned here with their worship than he is with their knowledge. And my contention to you today is that it's not okay to merely know some things about who God is and what He is like, in other words, that He exists as a trinity, but that these things must come down from our heads into our hearts and affect the way that we live. And I believe that there is nowhere that this is more clear than Romans chapter 8. So, let's turn there together. And as we kick off this important week of prayer for us as a church, and we have prayer guides in the back that I'll discuss with you in a moment that Harvey prepared for us. As we prepare for this week of prayer, I want to prove to you, and I want to encourage you with the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that you will begin to understand His role in your life and you will depend upon Him through your prayers. So that you will understand that who God is and His very person has very important bearing on the way that you live. So we will examine Romans chapter 8 today and see the ministry of the Spirit and hopefully see how that should affect the way that we pray. Mostly, I believe, we tend to and probably should direct our prayers to the Father. We see Jesus Himself doing this. In fact, when the disciples ask Jesus how to pray, He instructs them to pray this way, Our Father who is in heaven. So typically it seems that our prayers are sort of directed toward the Father. But I think we can get a little bit wooden about that. That is to say, I think that our prayers can be directed to any member of the Trinity. And though perhaps most likely and most usually our prayers are directed toward the Father for provision for forgiveness, for sustenance. As we discern the various activity of the various members of the Trinity in the Bible, I think it makes sense that perhaps whenever we are depending upon each member of the Trinity for each thing that they distinctly do, that perhaps our prayers might be directed toward them. Let me give you a couple of examples. If we are asking for forgiveness for an offense... It might seem most likely that even though our prayers might be directed to any member of the Trinity, that perhaps our prayers most distinctly would be directed toward the Father, for our offenses are against Him. In fact, the Father sent the Son to reconcile us to Himself. R.C. Sproul, a well-known theologian whom some of you might be aware of, was once asked, from what does God save us? What are we saved from? And Sproul's answer was, God saves us from Himself. He saves us from His wrath. So, we might say that when we pray prayers of confession and repentance, they might be directed toward the Father. As we discern in the Scriptures that Jesus Christ is the most glorious being that has ever lived, we might direct our prayers to Him and ask Him in the morning, Jesus, You have rescued me for Your glory. You are my King. Today, allow me to abide in you and reflect your glory. Also, as another example, when we are praying for illumination as we read the Bible, I think in those moments it might be very applicable and even appropriate to ask the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds to help us understand the Word. Paul says, this in 1 Corinthians that the spirit is the one who grants us illumination or understanding of the word. In fact, the spirit does a whole lot on our behalf. The spirit is the one who gave us new birth according to Jesus in John chapter 3. So when you're praying for your unbelieving friend or brother or sister or neighbor that you would like to see become a Christian to whom might your prayers be directed? Well, I think any member of the trinity But because salvation is initiated by new birth, the Spirit sovereignly does that, doesn't it make sense that your prayers in those moments or for those particular topics might be directed toward the Spirit? So it's my contention today that prayer can be directed toward any member of the Trinity. But as we discern several things about the Spirit in Romans chapter 8, I think that as we discern His ministry to us in these distinct ways, it encourages us toward prayer. Jude mentions this. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. That is to say, as we are growing in our capacity to worship God, we pray in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You'll notice every member of the Trinity is present in these two verses. There's the Spirit, there's the Father, and there's the Son. We are renewed to the Father through the mercy of the Spirit by the ministry of Jesus through the Spirit. Let me put it another way. God brings us back to Himself by giving us Jesus, and the Spirit is the one who reminds us about Jesus and keeps us in Jesus. So in Jude, we see here in these couple of verses a Trinitarian prayer, or a Trinitarian instruction. But I think it's pretty clear here that the Holy Spirit is essential in that process. Spurgeon, the great British preacher, said over a hundred years ago, prayer is the autograph of the Holy Ghost upon the renewed heart. So as we pray to God with these renewed hearts that no longer depend upon self, but instead depend upon God, that is a ministry of the Spirit and a proof of new life. I think we could say that because of the first sin in the Garden of Eden, that we are bent toward autonomy. We are are bent toward making life work on our own. This is what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with. Self-rule. He wanted them to believe and to crave self-rule. And ever since then, we've been infected with this disease where we reject the sovereign care of the Creator and depend upon self. But because of Christ's merciful work of salvation, the Spirit is given to us as a gift. And prayer is the daily reminder that we cannot make life work on our own, nor should we try And the Spirit has been given to us as a gift so that we might depend upon God. So, with that in mind, I think that we must trust the Spirit in light of three things. The first is our deep fear of condemnation. Now, I'm going to buckle in because we're going to read this chapter together. I want you to pay attention as we read. It's a little bit long, but... Ultimately, I can't change your hearts. God does that through the Scriptures. He does that through the Bible. So let's worshipfully now pay attention as we read these verses. And the first thing we're going to see, in fact, it permeates the entire chapter, is that we must trust the Spirit in light of our deep fear of condemnation. Then I'm going to come back and show you how prayer is an essential component of that. So let's worshipfully now read God's Word. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Let's hang in there. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. These next verses really capture the daily longing and brokenness of our world. Let's read together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I know that that was long. But these 39 verses are charged like like static electricity in the atmosphere. They're charged with promise and hope. Now as I've already said to you today, the scriptures proclaim to us that the trinity is a true doctrine. And that's nowhere more clear than in these verses in Romans chapter 8. But it's interesting, again, that we are not merely told to believe in the Trinity, we're told to trust the Trinity. And I believe, perhaps, the basic and most essential motif or essential theme in these verses is that we have been given the Spirit For we live in the age after Christ has ascended back to be with the Father. And as we saw in John chapter 14, He promised to send the Helper. He's the one who is with us today to minister to us. One of the primary fears of all humans is the fear of condemnation. And really, the basic message of this entire chapter is that we need not fear condemnation let me try to illustrate this for you. In fact, I've used this illustration before, but it always sticks in my mind because it's very personal. I grew up as a pastor's son, which means that I was supposed to be righteous and holy. So, whenever you're a pastor's kid, you have a lot of pressure on you because everybody's watching. In fact, I remember um, when I was 16, I've also told this story, I stole some clothes and I got caught That's the first time I'd gotten caught. I had stolen a lot of stuff before that, but I finally got caught. I was at the store with my parents. I was clearly addicted to this, or I would not have stolen with my parents, but they were there, and I went off by myself and stole something and was on the way out to the car. I had gotten the keys from my dad. I couldn't drive yet, and um, this guy in a pair of jeans and a flannel shirt came running out after me, and I knew what had happened. He was like the undercover security guard. So he nabbed me. My little brother was with me. My little brother's wailing, you know, thinking he's gonna like get thrown into Leavenworth for the rest of his life. So I get taken over to this room, and um, and you know they they have to call over the loudspeaker. Will the parents of Lee Davis, please come to the security office, which was incredibly embarrassing. And so when when I got home, my my dad was very frustrated with me, clearly, and. He, he said to me, you know, what happens if I lose my job because you, you, you stole? Well, he was being a little dramatic in the moment and probably wasn't the most encouraging thing to say to me in the moment. But, but I always felt this pressure that if I didn't perform well, that, you know, it would reflect very poorly my dad and my dad's um, job was largely dependent upon, you know, his character. So I always felt this pressure as a pastor's kid. But I was, I was living very, very sinfully. And it was much more than just thievery. I did all kinds of really horrible things in my early teenage years. I was really good at pretending to be good, and, you know, I knew all the right words. I knew how to dress. I knew how to, you know, play the game and all that kind of stuff. But inside, I was a a terrible disaster. Um, I remember, um, especially in my old house where my parents used to live when I was a young kid, during that time of life where I was really, really sinful and rebelling against God, Whenever the phone would ring, and we know this is the age before cell phones, you had the phone on the wall with a big, huge, long cord that was incredibly loud. The phone would ring. And I remember, and this is no lie, I am not using hyperbole, I am not exaggerating, whenever that phone would ring for those three or four years of my life, I remember being deathly afraid that that was going to be the phone call where my latest sin was exposed. In fact, when I finally got caught stealing those clothes, that was a huge turning point in my life because I finally got caught, and God used that to really turn my life around. But I remember that every time that phone would ring, I, somebody was going to come telling me for some horrible sin that I'd committed, and there were some really bad ones. You know what it's like if you have kids and you catch them doing something—the look on their face when they've been exposed, and especially as they get a little bit older, the wheels begin to turn, and they begin to try to figure out ways to justify it, right, or or kind of spin it so it doesn't sound so bad. You know, it's like when you're at work and you don't have a project finished like you should get, but your boss sends you an email and he's like, where is this? I'm, I'm expecting this. I was supposed to have this a week ago. You know that sinking feeling inside when you're like, I am screwed. You've been through this before, whether it's with your spouse or your kids or your boss or your family. We fear getting exposed because we feel like we'll be condemned. And of course, on a much more grand scale, we know what it's like to have this basic intuition that there's a God out there and he has expectations for me. He made me to live for His glory. He made me to show how great He is. He made me to obey Him. He made me for Himself. Yet I I often do all kinds of things that don't please Him. But He's got way more power than a dad or a mom or a teacher or a boss. He's totally sovereign. He made me out of nothing, and my existence is completely held together by His grace. He's way more powerful than me. And if He's displeased with me, I'm in trouble. We have this sense of condemnation all the time because we fail people around us all the time, whether we want to cover it up and try to pretend like we don't or not. But again, on a much more grand and magnificent scale, there is a God to whom we must give account. And Paul has argued throughout this letter, which we went through verse by verse over the past several years. And he has said that we can be rescued from our sin, that we all deserve punishment for our sin. That because God is holy, He must punish sin. That if He didn't punish sin, He would cease to be holy and therefore cease to be worth worshiping. He'd be just like us. God must punish sin. We have fallen short of His glorious expectations. But God didn't leave things there. He sent His Son to be our substitute. That is to say... Jesus took our sins upon Himself and offered us His righteousness. It's a huge exchange, and it's not fair. It's not fair that Jesus gets our sin, and it's not fair that we get His righteousness. He didn't sin, and He didn't deserve the death that came. He died because of our sin. And it's not fair that we get His righteousness because we didn't earn it. But grace is not about fairness grace is bewildering grace is transformative grace is beautiful and grace is full of hope and that's why really at the pinnacle of paul's argument here in this letter to the roman church he comes to chapter 8 and he says in verse 1 there is no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus he painted a very dark picture at the beginning of this letter and said everybody deserves punishment for their sin But because of Jesus Christ, we have hope, and we need not fear condemnation. And the Spirit is the one, according to Paul, who continues to remind us that we need not fear condemnation. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 8, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Notice in verse 4, This has all been done in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. We have been given the Spirit for many reasons, but perhaps the chief of those is to remind us that we belong to God. And as we saw back in John 14, Jesus knew that His people would fear when He was off the scene because He wouldn't be with them to remind them of His promises. But He was about to go die for them and then He would be resurrected and the Helper would come to minister to them what Jesus had said to them and what He had done for them. Jesus promised His disciples that they would not be orphans because He would come and be with them Through the Spirit. And interestingly, that's the same thing that Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8. He says in verse 14 that we are led by the Spirit of God and therefore we are sons of God. We still fear the spirit of slavery, our old slavery to sin, but we need not because we've been given the spirit of adoption. And whereas before we feared the condemnation of the Almighty Creator, now we call Him, verse 15, dear Father. Think about that. The judge whose gavel was going to fall and order our execution has come down off the bench, removed the black robe which caused fear, taken off the white wig, and embraced us as a Father and who reminds us of that the spirit does in verses 18 through 30 paul makes it very clear that this world is a place of disappointment of deep struggle in fact sometimes we struggle so much we don't even know what to say to god but in verses 26 and 27 it's clear that the father has given us the spirit so we know how to talk to the father If you've ever seen a video of the proceedings that go on in the U.N., the United Nations headquarters in Manhattan, you'll, you'll see these people from all kinds of different nations. And especially in the olden days, before English became a little bit more well-known globally, you would see people with headphones. And as somebody was up at the podium speaking, the ambassadors from the various countries would be wearing headphones. And somebody from their country would be interpreting probably off in some room somewhere, interpreting what the speaker was saying. This is especially true because you have a collection of people from all over the world. And if you don't have that person, you can't understand what's going on. And It's important that you understand what's going on so you can report back to your country so they know what's going on. There's a lot of interpretation that's got to be done if information is going to flow freely. The Father has given us the Spirit so that whenever we don't know how to pray, communication still gets through. And then we're reminded here at the end of the chapter that we need not fear because nothing will separate us from God's love. Well, who does that? The Spirit does that. He's the one who reminds us that we're not orphans, that we have a dear Father. So we must trust the Spirit in light of our deep fear of condemnation. I was talking to one of you the other day about this, but I think it's very true, and that is this fact. The fact is that most of us, despite the generation in which we grew up, most of us in one way or another have this void in us, which we might call the father void. Probably needs a better title, and as I think through it more, maybe I'll come up with a better one. But, but it's, it's there in one sense or another, and here's what I mean by that. Most of us in one way or another look at our parents, and I think specifically our father's, and have some feelings and some ways of deficiencies in our parents, and again, particularly in our fathers. Now, there's probably a few of you here who say, not me, my dad was the greatest dad in the whole world. And I would think that probably most of us, and I know most of your stories, most of your background, most of us, most of us can look back at our dads and see so much good, me included. But in one way or another, I think a lot of us look back and see a lot of deficiencies in our fathers. And frankly, some of you sitting here today say, that's me, and you don't know the half of it. But I think that whether or not you had the best father there ever was, or perhaps the worst father that there ever was, as you become an adult, you realize some of the deficiencies in that man. Maybe he wasn't very merciful. Maybe he rarely smiled. Maybe he worked too much. Maybe he was mean. Maybe he was abusive. Maybe he was absent. And it's interesting, especially as I talk to guys from my generation, people in like their 20s through their 40s, somewhere in there, how many guys look back at their fathers. And this happens all the time and there's something in them which has been wounded by their father's lack of being a good dad, lack of being a good father. Why is that? Well, it's because our fathers were sinful, some far more so than others. But I think it's also just the reality of this fallen world. And while all of us should strive to be absolutely the best dads that we can be, in other words, fallenness does not give us an excuse to be crappy fathers. At the same time, might it be that because of the fact that this world has fallen, God has in some way left that void so that there will be a longing for the perfect? In fact, maybe we could flip that around and say, because we can read about the perfect... And because we are learning to rest in the love of the perfect Father, it makes every other father pale in comparison. Who reminds us of this? The Spirit does. So whether you had the worst father or the best, there's some ache within you for a perfect father who will never do wrong. Who will never be harsh when he should be kind. Who will never be absent when he should show up. Who will never fail to embrace or speak words of promise and love. Who will never fail to discipline in the right way. The Spirit is the one who ministers those truths to us. How many of you feel basically lonely a lot of the time? I think a lot of you do. I know I do a lot of the time. I have the best wife I could possibly dream of. I love my children. I'm thankful for great friendships, most of which are in this church. But I still feel lonely a lot of the time. Part of that's the fallenness of this world, and part of that is the Spirit saying to me, there's a better one coming. So, how do I deal with my loneliness? How do I deal with my fear of condemnation when I recognize and admit my deep-seated sinfulness? I depend upon the Spirit. So here's what that might look like. Let me turn some of this into a prayer for you. Let's start in verse 12. Holy Spirit, I need no longer live according to the to the rule of sin. We see that back in chapter 6 and 7 of Romans. In the old days, I lived according to the flesh, and I knew that was leading to death. But Holy Spirit, You have been given to me to help me reject sin and live for God's glory. I know that You have been given to me to remind me that I am God's Son. I need not fear the slavery to sin that I once experienced. I need not fear at all, for I have been adopted by God. Please remind me that I belong to Him, and by Your grace, may I relate to Him, and may I trust Him as my dear Father. Holy Spirit, prove in me and through me that I am God's child that I am an heir with Him and with Jesus, my brother. And though I will suffer in this world, there is a world coming in which I will be glorified together with the Son of God. Prove these things to me. Minister these things to me. And may I trust You. Verses 26 and 27. Holy Spirit, today I'm too weak to pray. I don't even want to. But help me because my communication has to get through to the dear Father, for He's the only one who can help me. Today, on my behalf, though I am weak and though I am sinful, help me communicate to the Father on my behalf. May He know my struggle. May He know my weakness. May you speak to Him, and may He minister to me and give me what I need, for I am His saint. I am His child. I want to know His will and do His will. Please help me. And what you've done by praying such a prayer, or however you might put it, as you've taken the promise of the ministry of the Spirit, you've turned it back around and you're saying to Him, Your Word that you have inspired says you will do these things. So I'm praying these things back to you. I fear condemnation. I fear rejection. I fear fatherlessness. You've been given to me to help me to prove to me that I've never been abandoned and I never will be. Help me, please. So we must trust the Spirit in light of our deep fear of condemnation. Secondly, and related to that, we must trust the Spirit in light of our continual struggle against sin. We must trust the Spirit in light of our continual struggle against sin. Let me paint a very brief picture here. In Romans chapter 6, which I've already mentioned, Paul says that we are no longer slaves to sin. But the reality is you still sin, and I still sin. Now, once I've come to Christ and trusted Him, I don't sin because I have to. I sin because I want to. Those are two very, very different things. Do you know one of the most essential and basic differences between a Christian and a non-Christian? A person whom Christ has become their Lord, and a person who has not trusted Christ as their Lord. You know one of the most basic differences between those two people? A person who is not a Christian, a person who has not come to Christ, a person who is not indwelt by the Spirit, cannot stop sinning. So that even the things that they do that might seem somewhat good, philanthropic, righteous, whatever, even those things are not for God's glory and therefore are sin. Everything a person who is not a Christian does is a sin in one way or another. That might bother you, but it's reality. But the difference for a Christian is that they don't have to sin. Now, like a non-Christian, they still sin. Both parties still sin. But the Christian has the ability not to sin. Not only to reject clearly sinful things, but to do the right things for the right reasons. So Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 6, you're no longer a slave of sin if you belong to Christ. You don't have to sin. And so he says there, don't sin. But in chapter 7, the very next chapter, he makes it very clear that we do still sin. A lot of the things that we don't want to do, we still do, right? A lot of the things that we want to do, we don't do. The things we should do, in other words, we fail to do very often. And there's no answer in chapter 7 for how to get out of this struggle of not doing the things we don't want to do and of doing the things we should be doing. Which is why chapter 8 is there. Chapter 8 is there not only to promise us that that we need not fear condemnation, but also to promise us that we can live for His glory after we are no longer condemned. Let's look at some of these verses once again and turn them into a prayer. Verse 9. Holy Spirit, I am no longer a slave of sin, but I belong to You, and You dwell in me as my helper. I used to not belong to the Father, but now I do. And Christ is in me, and You minister to me as my helper. And though this flesh, my, my body, is dying I will have eternal life because You're in me and You'll bring me to the end. Holy Spirit, You helped raise Jesus from the dead. And because I have been united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection, I will live eternally. And now I have been brought to life to live for my Father's glory. So we depend upon the Spirit In light of our deep fear of condemnation, we depend upon the Spirit in light of our continual struggle against sin. The Spirit alone is the one who can help us not sin. Remember, once again, we are not slaves to sin once we have come to Christ. If we have been united with Christ in His death and resurrection, we are no longer slaves of sin. But who reminds us of this? Like Jesus said, when I go away, the Helper will come. He'll remind you everything I said to you. And He'll remind you of all the things I've done for you. The Spirit reminds us of these things and gives us the power not to sin. In many ways, if we're being honest, life is a constant choice of whether we're going to be Happy in God's way or happy in our own way. That is to say, in what way are we going to be happy? All of us, in one way or another, are pre-programmed to be happy. God made us that way. Interestingly, in some twisted way, even people who are relatively melancholy, that is to say, they, they're constantly sort of down, in that there's a sort of weird pleasure that can even come from that. Have you ever been there? Like it's a day where you're just mad at the world and you're not satisfied in anything and your friend calls you and says, hey, let's go get coffee. And you're like, no, I'm going to stay inside of my pajamas and I'm not going to shower. And what you're really saying is somehow in some twisted way, this is going to make me feel better. It's weird and it's sort of counterintuitive, but we're like this. We are pre-programmed to seek pleasure and satisfaction. And essentially, that's what sin does sin offers us some measure of satisfaction. But the problem, of course, for those of us who are Christians, we realize that the temporary satisfaction that comes from sinful choices ultimately cannot bring lasting happiness. We call this idolatry. And idols abound. Idols are not merely statues of wood and stone Idols can be found in our wallets or in our bank statements. Idols can be found on our DVRs. Idols can be found in our living rooms and on our bodies with what we wear and how we spend our time and what we eat and how much we work and who our friends are and so forth and so on. It's seemingly never ending. And though God has given us many of these things, money, food, clothing, occupations, when these things become ultimate, they become gods to us. God has given us many gifts that we might see them as an avenue to praise Him and to worship Him, be thankful to Him. But often we turn the gifts into the ultimate. And because we will constantly struggle against sin, in fact, Calvin said about 500 years ago that these hearts of ours are idle factories. And these idle factories run three shifts a day and they never shut down even for holidays. How will we combat those idle factories? The Spirit is the one who has been given to us to push back against that, to remind us that we've tried those different idols. And though they brought fleeting pleasure, it did not last. And the Spirit alone is the one who reminds us of these truths and instead helps us to worship Christ instead. He's the one who empowers us to do so. So we trust Him, and I believe we pray to Him to help us with fear of condemnation and with our struggle against sin. John says something important for us in 1 John chapter 4. Little children, you are from God, and have overcome them. For he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, is greater than he who is in the world. How do we fight Satan and his temptation? We depend upon the Spirit. What about everybody else around us? What about non-Christians? What about when they sin? Well, you can't fix their sin. But there is one who can. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 16. When he comes, that is the Helper. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, concerning righteousness because they go to the Father, and you will see Me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. What will happen to those who choose to be their own gods? What will happen to those who reject Christ? They will be judged. We don't say this with any sort of pleasure or glee, but it is reality, and the Spirit is one who is responsible for bringing conviction to those who do not belong to Christ. But this isn't all bad, for if this had not happened in our own hearts, we would not be sons of God. So though you can trust the Spirit to deal with the sin of the world, that righteousness will eventually prevail, you can also trust the Spirit and depend upon Him And even pray to Him when you crave those around you who have rejected Christ to come to Him. Or to put it much more simply, who is the one who will change a sinner into a saint? It's the Spirit alone. So when you see your father or your mother or your brother or your neighbor, and you long for them to experience the joy that you found in rejecting what this world has to offer and choosing Christ and Sid, who's the only one who can do that? It's the Spirit. You cannot change a heart. No matter how sound and convincing your theological arguments are, you cannot do it. The Spirit alone can do that. So you depend upon Him to change hearts, yours and those around you. So we must trust the Spirit in light of our fear of condemnation. We must trust the Spirit in light of our continual struggle against sin. And lastly and quickly, we must trust the Spirit in light of our ever-present trials and pain. Back in verse 18, we've already seen that this world is full of suffering. In verse 20, Paul says that the creation is groaning. In fact, we ourselves are groaning, verse 22. And he likens it to the pains of childbirth with no epidural. That's how bad this was. It's excruciating sometimes, this world. I think today, if we were in Syria, certain parts of India, and frankly, lots of other places in the world, and we were being persecuted for our faith that we were Christians, these verses would ring truth to us. But we need not fear firearms or swords, beheadings, defraudment to actually go through trials. That is to say, we don't have to be in a place that hates Christians to undergo persecution and trial. You see, we're surrounded by sinful people all the time, and guess what? Sinful people hurt each other. People slander our character. People gossip against us. People reject us and run away from us. Our own sin gets exposed, and we suffer for it. I was watching a documentary this past week on Auschwitz. I think the BBC put it together. And toward the end of the series, I was on the last episode, um, there was an older lady. She was from Hungary. She's a Jew. She wasn't Hungary. She was from Hungary. And she had been deported to Auschwitz in Poland, which was probably the most notorious of the German concentration camps. She was one of the last ones left when the Germans fled Auschwitz the the Russians were the Soviets were coming from the Eastern Front and the Germans the Nazis knew this so they fled Auschwitz most of the detainees that had been left that had not yet been killed they took with them and took to another concentration camp but they couldn't get them all out the SS was supposed to come in behind them and shoot all the remaining prisoners so there were no witnesses but they fled and got out of the way and there were a couple thousand prisoners that were left behind one of which was this this lady this uh, Hungarian Jew. And um, when uh, when the Soviet soldiers approached, some of which did horrible things themselves, but some of which were actually relatively merciful, she recounted how this Soviet soldier came up to her and embraced her. And she said, though it was a very simple act of kindness and we couldn't communicate, we couldn't speak the same language, it was like a beacon of light shone into my hell. This little girl who had seen millions of people murdered all around her. This little girl who had lost everything. I think in some ways that demonstrates to us what this world is like. In some ways it's like a living hell. It's disappointing. It tears at our souls. Sometimes we just want to escape it. But the Father embraces us in grace and shows that there's hope. And the Spirit is the one who ministers His presence to us. So, because this world is so disappointing, we basically have two options. We can cower and hide, or we can trust that one is making all things new. In fact, we see this in verse 23 of chapter 8. Paul says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In some ways, Paul is saying that adoption has two stages. There's the initial stage of being brought into the family. Legally, we are sons and daughters now. But there's a finality we have not yet experienced. And until we're with Him eternally, very literally with Him eternally, And this broken world, this orphanage in which we exist is done away with, and we exist with God in our new home, that we long for that. But it's not blind hope. It's real hope. It's substantial, and it's coming. So what was your week like? What's your year been like? What's your life like generally? And one way or another, even though there are moments of sheer happiness, There's also this ache that this world is not quite right. And for those who belong to God, those in whom the spirit of adoption cries out, we await the finality of our adoption when all things will be made new. So we pray to Him and we trust Him. Let's turn some of this into a prayer tonight, or this morning rather. Verse 28, God, though I don't love you like I should, I know that you have been given to me, Holy Spirit, to remind me that I belong to the Father. And I know that even the hardest stuff, even the stuff that rips away at the very fabric of my soul, I know that these things will work out for good. I don't see it, but I trust it. And I know this, Holy Spirit, because the Father chose me before the world was ever started, before the foundations of the world were ever laid I was chosen and predestined. And I know this because you called me. And I know this because Christ justified me. And I know that my glorification is sure and it's coming. Remind me of these truths. May I rest in the hope of these truths. Help me, I pray. So, we trust the Spirit in light of our fear of condemnation. We trust the Spirit in light of our continual struggle against sin, and we trust the Spirit in light of our ever present trials and pain. And I believe, and this is the way I want to end today, I believe that the best way that you trust Him is by praying to Him. So, do you fear condemnation, separation, loneliness? Pray to the Spirit. Do you hate your sin? Are you struggling to overcome habits and to please God? Pray to the Spirit. Are you frustrated with this world, its brokenness, its lack of perfection? Do you long for a better one? You trust the Spirit through prayer. J. R. R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings trilogy, said in another composition, We all long for Eden, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our our whole nature is still soaked with the sense of exile. And though we are exiles in this world, we know that the Spirit is reminding us that there is a better one coming, and until it comes, we depend on Him. There's a sense in our hearts deep down that things aren't right, but there is one who is making all things new, and we depend upon Him, and we wait for Him.